Hey guys, this is Dave Gebro from the Discography Podcast, and you're listening to the Surely You Can't Be Serious Podcast. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious Podcast. We are back for part two of our Christine versus Cujo versus The Dead Zone the Stephen King trifecta of 1983. All of these movies, 40 years old this year, and we are celebrating them on Halloween month. Right? Shoot, this episode's going to drop right next to Halloween. I so hope you guys are getting your costumes ready where you're dressed as a 1958 Red Fury, right? <laughs> <laughs> I want to wish everyone a happy Halloween for the thousands of Shirley fans that we have out there. Welcome back for the thousands of new people who seem to be joining us every day. We will treat this episode as an icebreaker because the ice is going to break. <laughs> <laughs> the ice is going to break. <laughs> You know, every time I think about the dead zone, that that line totally comes to mind. <laughs> Let's just jump in. I mean, we're this is part two. If you've missed part one, you can start here or you can start there. It doesn't matter. We are free form. We are having fun. We are just here to have a good time. That's right. We're here to celebrate these three movies. But before we do, D, I want to I want to put out a call to everybody. We are really close to having fifty thousand followers on Facebook. Oh wow! I mean, like forty nine thousand and change. <laughs> So please, we drop stuff all the time. We do cool memes and fun stuff, lots of 80s and 90s stuff. Of course, we drop our podcast there as well. So it's a great place to hook up with us. If you have not liked our Facebook page, go to at Shirley Podcast on Facebook and like Facebook. Yes. And another quick request. We love you guys. We appreciate you listening to us. We want you to reach out to us. If you're not comfortable enough to do that, that's cool. But if you would leave us a five-star review, that would let other people in the world know about us. It kind of moves us up in the rankings, and we really appreciate you guys being able to do that. And if you would like to buy Jason and I a cup of coffee, you can become a Patreon member for as little as five bucks a month. We've got different tiers. Some of those will result in gifts. But even at the lowest tier, you get access to all of our special episodes that we do on One Hit Wonders of the 80s and 90s. It's some of our most fun episodes. It's a very cozy kind of thing, and we love diving into some of these crazy One Hit Wonders of the 80s and 90s. That's right. If you're a Patreon member, you might get a call from us to join us on a Patreon episode. And We reached out to our buddy Chris Weber. We pulled him off the sidelines, and he played quarterback for a day or so. Exactly. So, exactly. It was a great time. Hey, I've got something real quick for you, D. Yeah. We've got a five-star review that I want to give a throw out to our guy Mike Campo. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So Mike says, hey guys, I always enjoy the content you put out and look forward to every week the new episode. Keep it up. My favorite episodes are when you guys compare movies with one another. So maybe he'll like today. But he recommended Total Recall versus Starship Troopers. Man, that'd be dude, fantastic. Oliver Hoven. Yeah. That'd be fun, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we did a podcast on Total Recall with the 30-something movie guys, and that was a super amount of fun, but we could definitely go and deep dive into it, and then versus Starship Troopers would be a perfect matchup. That'd be That's great. That's right. And you know, just kind of a little side connection to Total Recall, David Cronenberg worked heavily on Total Recall. Yeah. 
and it just wasn't happening for him. And so he abandoned that ship and ended up making The Fly, uh, which we talked about during our Halloween movies. Yeah, and also that one has been recommended to us that we do a matchup, The Fly, and the suggestion was The Thing, right? which would have made sense, but we've already done that one. Sure. But now I'm thinking we do that one versus The Body Snatchers because they're both movies from the 50s that were remade in the 70s and 80s. That'd be fun. That would be fun. Yeah. Well, guys, you are here to listen to us talk about Stephen King, so we're going to talk about Stephen King and the movies that he produced. Yeah, absolutely. Once we talk about these three movies, I'm going to give you a list. So I know you haven't read too many of Stephen King books. You've read a few. Mm-hmm. And we actually put it out as a poll in our Patreon member, and then several of them have read 10-plus books by Stephen King. We are going to give you our list of the top three Stephen King film adaptations. And then, just for fun, I'm going to throw in my top three Stephen King books, and I may even throw in some short stories for you. Sounds great, man. Sounds great. Okay. Okay, so we mentioned last time, or at least we kind of grazed over the idea that the inspiration for Cujo was actually an experience that Stephen King had had. He had a motorcycle... He needed some repair work done to the motorcycle and was told, hey, there's this guy who lives out in the country, but he's really a good mechanic and he works for a good price. And so he drives his motorcycle out there and once he gets there is immediately confronted by a very mean, nasty dog. Yeah, that's right. Now, it's interesting because we've gotten that information from Stephen King. He's, he's like, this, this is what inspired me to write this book. He's also said, I was so addicted to alcohol and cocaine at this point that I do not remember writing the book at all. So It's, it's crazy. Remember the inspiration for the story. He just can't remember writing the story. It's <laughs> it's kind of nuts. Hey, this will not be the last time that cocaine comes up because I've got a story for you that's going to blow your socks off. I'm excited to hear it. So he writes that story. As we mentioned, the producer for Christine was also the producer for Salem's Lot. And Stephen King really enjoyed what he did with that and said, hey, I'd like to give you stories that I'm working on to see if you might like to make those into movies as well. And this guy's like, yeah, of, cro- of course, yes. What? Whatever you got, dude, I'm on board with. And so the first story that he gave him was Cujo, but he passed. He's like, I don't really know how I'm going to make a movie out of this. This is not like a good movie idea. A St. Bernard that terrorizes a family in a car. And then the next one is a car that terrorizes a bunch of people in a town. And that one, he's like, oh yeah, that one I can do. (laughs) Jeez, why didn't you give me this one first? I know, right? (laughs) There's something else we need to mention. In Stephen King's world, a lot of stuff happens around this fictional town called Castle Rock. Yeah. So Cujo happens in Castle Rock. The Dead Zone happens in Castle Rock. Our buddies over at the 30-something podcast just dropped Needful Things. Needful Things. Yeah. Which is actually kind of the death of Castle Rock, right? (laughs) Until they came out with the Castle Rock series. That's true. I don't know that that revived it or not, though. I think that was a failed attempt at CPR. Yeah. And so there are characters in Cujo that appear in the Dead Zone and vice versa. Yeah. It's kind of fun. So the house that we're talking about, I mean, the house, it's kind of interesting because, you know, you know that this, even if you have just a small amount of information about this movie, you know it involves a woman and her son being terrorized by a dog in a car, right? Right. That doesn't even start until 45 minutes into the movie. Like, and the movie's only an hour and a half long. You're halfway through before they show up, which is good because it was a long process anyway. But the house house that they go to is called the Camber House because that's the mechanic's name is Camber. She doesn't know when she gets there that he's already been killed by Cujo as well as as his friend, but he's a big turd anyway, so you don't really mind him him dying. But the Camber House was an actual house that they found and they used, but it had a history behind it. It was an old farmhouse, and the son of the family that owned it actually
actually hung himself in the tree that you see in the movie. What? Yes. What? And so one day, the crew, having no idea about this story, just as a joke, they had these bodies that they have for special effects. And so just as a joke, they decide to hang one of the bodies off of the tree, having no idea about this story. And the producers show up and they know the story and, and they're like, are you guys out of your mind? Like they reamed them up and down. And then Danny Paturo's mother comes over and talks to the producer and she's like, I'm sorry, did you say that there was a teenager that killed himself at this place? And he's like, yeah. And she says, well, I don't know if you know, but I'm really into clairvoyance and I've been tapping into a spirit that is a teenage boy the whole time that we've been here. Like, I feel like he might be haunting the house. <laughs> okay. Danny Pintura's mom is Johnny Smith. Yes, exactly. How about that? She's got a little bit of the shine. She's got the shine. That is cool, yeah. right? Yeah. That makes that I mean that make that makes it even more creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Hey D, guess what? Okay. I'm doing a Fraser podcast. Even though you wouldn't do it with me. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was a terrible idea back before they reboot the entire series. Now it's not such a bad idea, okay? I know. Uh, so our buddy Jeff Johnson is joining me. We're recapping the new Frasier series on Paramount+. Plus. If you like Frasier, we talk about the old Frasier. We talk about the new Frasier show. Uh, come check us out over there. You know, I don't know if everybody knows, but Jason is the guy who came up with the brilliant name for our podcast of Surely You Can't Be Serious. Thank you. And the name of this podcast is also brilliant it's called crane scrutiny well, could not pick a better title thank you that's that's very good jeff actually came up with that so good job jeff yep we're gonna have fun check us out the crane scrutiny covering the new tv show on fraser i've heard your first episode covering the first two episodes and i loved every second of it thanks buddy yeah awesome okay so cars are obviously heavily involved in christine but this car this pinto car that she has this this piece of crap. Right. <laughs> By the way, D. Wallace was like, if I am never around another Pinto as long as I live, it will be too soon. <laughs> hey, it bears re-mentioning. You sent me a text when we were working on part one. <laughs> yeah. The car that the dad drives is like a $110,000 Jag. <laughs> the car that the mom gets, you know, you get to haul around Tad and go. $8,500 pile of poo. <laughs> yes, that's right. So just like with Christine, they had to have several different vehicles they used sure. in this because they're filming inside of the car. And then obviously lots of damage happens to the car over the course of the terrorization that's going on. But there's a fantastic scene. I say fantastic. It's it's very interesting. It made me a little nauseous watching it. Yeah. But there's a point where you as the audience, the camera is looking at D. Wallace in the driver's seat. And then it spins around and sure. you see Danny back in the, in the back. And then it spins around again and to her and I'm like how they have room to put a whole kit well they drilled a hole through the ceiling of the car lowered the camera down in there and it's literally spinning the camera around and around lots of crazy work really cool shot Jan DuPont yeah I heard Danny Pintero talking about how they're like were you scared you know were you scared of the dog were you scared of this and you're making an R-rated movie and it's a horror movie he's like no no I was fascinated like the whole time he's like I was captivated by the fact that somebody's job was to recreate doggy prints on the window 
Yeah. Well, somebody's job was to be the dog sometimes. <laughs> That's right. So they would have, you know, they have this really memorable scene where the dog is running towards the car and headbutts the side of the car and like shakes the whole car when he headbutts the car. Right, right. So the way they did that was one of the cars with the doors removed. And so they would have the trainer on one <laughs> side of the car with the dog toy. Yeah. And then the dog on the other side of the car and the dog would run as fast as he could to go through the car in the open doors to get his toy. Well, so then they cut the scene so that just before you see the dog about to hit the car, then they cut to the guy in the dog suit or guy in the dog suit. Smashing his head against Smashing his head against the car door. The guy in the dog suit, luckily we don't get a good glimpse of him because I saw him dressed up and we talked about the picture with him and D. Wallace doing the high kick thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks like he's out of banana splits or, you know, Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) It doesn't look realistic at all, but there was no point watching the movie that I was like, oh, there's the guy in the dog. Right, that's right. They did a very good job. That guy's name, by the way, Gary Morgan, just in case you want to know. What's up, Gary? He he appeared in Peach Dragon as well. Just Really? Why, yeah. Pete's Dragon. Okay. Okay. I got a question for you, man. Yeah. What is your favorite scene of Cujo? My favorite scene of Cujo, and I don't want to give it away, is when the monster comes back to life and is smashes through the window. The first time I saw it, I jumped out of my chair. <laughs> And I was a little kid, and so that really blew me away. And I didn't quite know the cinematic rules of, well, a good bad guy is never really dead. Right. So you sent me a thing that Charles Bernstein, the composer in this movie, that he had said, he's like, in this movie, the dog is killed by not one bat, but two. That's right. The bat that bites him, and then her swinging the bat, right? Yeah. And then I was like, well, yeah, but except that he's not. That's right. He's actually killed by, and then I sent you a picture of a bat 44 Magnum <laughs> <laughs> revolver. That's right. Three bats. That's it right. took three bats to take Cujo down. You know, it's funny. I was <laughs> talking to our good friend, Jeff Johnson. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about D. Wallace swinging a baseball bat. <laughs> and he said, yeah, she she went to the uh, Wendy Torrance School of Hitting. <laughs> Wendy Torrance from The Shining. That's right. He just kind of <laughs> waving it. Go away. Step back. Swinging the bat like the ancient Egyptians would swing a grass fan. You That's know? right. <laughs> Not exactly Babe Ruth. No, no. Okay, so my favorite scene for Cujo is, it's a great scare technique, and, and Lewis Teague talked about it, but I noticed it when he first did it. He gives you this illusion because Dee Wallace is sitting there. She's got her leg hanging out the door. She's trying to do something with Danny. We haven't been fully attacked yet. Right. But she's got her car door open and her leg out. Like, I mean, there you go. Prime grade A calf muscle right there to bite into. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And you are, you are going from what you believe to be the point of view of the dog. And you go right up to her and then nothing happens. And then you're looking at her doing something with Danny. And then all of a sudden the dog attacks from the opposite window. He tricks you thinking your point of view of the dog when you're actually just being prepped to be scared. Masterful. A lot of things in this movie were just very skillfully done. Yeah. So let's talk about Christine. We talked about the cars already that were used, the Pinto cars, multiple cars that they had to use. On Christine, 15% of their budget, and this was not a small budget movie. Sure. 15% went to buying the cars. 
I saw this. Like, they had one guy in charge of just going around and snagging these things wherever he could find them, you know? And they're not easy to find. We're talking about the late 70s, and this is a 58 Plymouth Fury. You're just not going to see a whole lot of these cars anyway, especially 20 years old. 58 Plymouth Fury. But by the time they were done, and they had dressed them all up, by the time they were done, there were only two that were left undestroyed. They were pretty liberal with the destruction of these cars. Like, they smashed the crap out of these the, the entire movie. Which brings me again to the question, what do you think the best scene in this one is? It's absolutely the show me scene. Show me. Oh, it's so much is. It's... I, I told you, like, this was the only one of these three movies that I had actually seen before in my life. You know, I think I was a teenager or whatever, but that was the memory from watching the movie the first time was that scene. I don't know that he shot the whole movie in anamorphic lens, but at that point, it's so obvious that he's got it because those lights are just totally, you got that horizontal peak on those, and they look so cool. Just the lights just coming on and that I mean, John Carpenter drops that perfect sound. Oh my gosh. But the actual regeneration of the car, it building itself back up is flawless. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, they, they made this movie in 83. We're talking about limited technology and so limited that John Carpenter wasn't even going to do it. Right. He wasn't going to do it. Special effects guy said, let me give it a shot. And they did this amazing thing where instead of trying to, push the car out to create a special effect where they are building the car back. They had it already built and then destroyed it and then shot it and played it in reverse. They reversed the film. They imploded the car. Yeah. And then they put it in reverse and it goes back to amazing. It is such a good scene. I mean, it's it's the best scene in the movie. It's the best scene in the movie. And like you said, they were not going to shoot it. John Carpenter talked about how Arnie was going to do the the show me line. The camera was going to drift off the car yeah. and then return and it be fixed. Yeah. And you would have felt cheated as an audience member if that had happened. No doubt, right? Yeah. We want to see the car fix itself. Yeah. I mean, if I can watch Bill Bixby turn into the Hulk, I should be able <laughs> right. to watch a car regenerate itself, right? Absolutely. Let me see the sleeves tear. Come on. I mean, we saw Herbie do all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I was thinking about that. When I saw I saw Herbie Goes Bananas in the theater, when the bad guys poured like goop into the radiator and like Herbie was sick, I was distraught oh, as a it's, kid. It's you know? sad. <laughs> you love Herbie. You can't not love Herbie. That's right. So the neighborhood that they shot this in, did it look familiar to you? Is it Halloween? Yeah. Same what? neighborhood. They shot the outdoor scenes, the suburban scenes they shot in the same neighborhood that they shot Halloween. Really? Yep. He loves Pasadena, apparently. Yeah, you got it. That's, That's cool, right? right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, and of course, like, it, it's so hard to find the right place to shoot. If you've found it once, why not use it again, right? Absolutely. I, I need a very American-looking suburb neighborhood. Right. I happen to know one. Let's right, exactly. go do it. Hey, yeah. John Ford did everything at Monument Valley. That's, yeah, I found my spot. I'm good to go. By the way, I got a little tidbit on Christine. I'm just going to drop right in here. Go ahead. The New York Times called Christine the most foul-mouthed movie of all time Yeah, because they use the F word a whole lot, right? Yes. Well, that little nugget quickly went to the wayside because Scarface was released the same year, <laughs> yeah. right? And it, They it held had the record like, for about three seconds. That's right. <laughs> and Scarface like doubled the amount of F-bombs, so... That's hilarious. Yeah. Okay, so Alexandra Hall. Yes. Brand new in this movie, right? Yeah. It's her first real acting job. Yes. She has a twin sister. 
I know, right? This Caroline is a funny story. Paul. Yes. So in the scenes where they have the bulldozer and they're doing the bulldozer scenes, yep. one day as a joke, she brings her sister to set. She has the hair and makeup guys dress her just like she is and has her go do the scene, right? And John Carpenter is like, are you feeling okay? What's going on? Yeah. You know, like, what? Are you all right? right. You know, it's kind of this weirdness. And then finally, Alexandra P- Paul comes out and she's like, have you replaced me already? <laughs> And he's like, what? Oh, because nobody knew that she had a twin sister. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so another couple of car things. Yeah. The movie that they're watching is called Thank God It's Friday. The premise of the movie is this guy has this car that he truly loves, and every time he takes it out, it gets damaged in some way. Really? On the At the drive-in? Yeah. You know, that's really cool. It's a car movie, obviously. We've got the 58 Plymouth Fury. They used other similar cars because they were so hard to find. They never made the Plymouth Fury in this candy apple red that this one is in. Really? Yeah. So that scene at the very beginning where you see it being evil from the factory level, it does actually make sense that it's red and everything else is not red because it's different. And it they didn't make them like that, right? It doesn't explain it, of course, but this is a you know they did that scene to explain the possession of the car since it wasn't the same as the novel. Interesting. And then you've got you've got several key vehicles. You've got this 58 Plymouth Fury that's the star of the show, right? right? You've got the cool car that John Stockton's driving around. That is a 68 Dodge Charger 440. That thing was a sweet... That was a sweet ride. Now you know you're a parent. When he peels out of the driveway going like, you know, 40 miles an hour backwards, I'm like, <laughs> you're going to kill some kid. What is wrong with you, sir? <laughs> uh I got a brand new 16-year-old driver who got a ticket. Got a ticket last week for going 80 in a 55. I'm going to decapitate. <laughs> what are you doing, sir? You oh, are not a good enough gosh. driver for this. That's right. Obviously, you've got the very memorable bulldozer. I mean, he is the the bulldozer becomes the hero of the movie. It does, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it's kind of funny because John Carpenter talked about that scene almost being like a rape scene. Like he's he's mounting the car. Yeah. Yeah. It's domination. He had to get trained to to drive it, but I mean, what a cool, I mean, how cool would it, I mean, not quite as cool as Tom Cruise learning how to fly planes and right, stuff, right. but but it would be cool to like, okay, we need you to learn how to drive a bulldozer uh, for this scene. Okay. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Sounds good. And in fact, they, they weren't intending to tread all the way over the car. They thought it might be a little dangerous. And one of the guys is like, well, why don't you just let me try it? <laughs> and it's cool because it's very satisfying <laughs> smash. Uh, I can remember when I very first moved to Norman, I had this little piece of crap that would just break down all of the time. And I broke down right as I got into Norman and this cop came over and I was like, I, if I could just get it over to the gas station, he's like, oh, I don't, I can call you a tow truck. I'm like, dude, I just moved here and I'm in college. <laughs> I have $6. I, can, I can't afford to say tow truck, right? <laughs> and so this, I'm telling this to this cop and he kind of looks side to side and he's like, oh, I could push you. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, let's, let's go for it, buddy. It was just that little joy of like, I get to use the hard power yep. tools on my car. <laughs> okay, one last car. Yeah, uh, this one's going to escape most people's attention. Yeah, Harry Dean, okay. Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, the detective. I don't even okay, one. yeah, yeah. He's driving a standard police issue vehicle. Do you know what it was? No, a Plymouth Fury. Are you serious? I am serious. Wow, it was in 1978 instead of 1958, but his he was driving a, a Plymouth Fury as well. Interesting. Very good. Okay. By the way, another tidbit for you. Since this time, Stephen King has written two characters in one story 
that were somewhat based on Harry Dean Stanton. The story was The Green Mile, and the characters were Harry Terwilliger and Dean Stanton, of course. Yeah, that's right. And then in the movie The Green Mile, Harry Dean Stanton is actually in it. He's old toot-toot. Yep, that's correct. Doing all the stuff, doing the dry the, the uh, dress rehearsal, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Good one. That's so good you got right there. you got some stuff on the music. I do. I want to hear. I it. do. Are we are we talking Christine music yeah, let's here. Talk Christine okay. music. Yeah. All right. So we know that the composer of Christine was John Carpenter. I mean, John Carpenter does all of his own type yeah. of stuff. He did it with this other guy named Alan Howarth. But I want to talk about the rock and roll music used in Christine. Yep. Okay. Once I started looking into this, I was like, D, have you looked into this? You're like, no. I'm like, don't do it. <laughs> right. Because once I started looking at this, I'm like, did Carpenter only choose people who had horrible deaths to do the <laughs> the soundtrack of this? Uh-huh. So other than, we know Bad to the Bone is used at the beginning of this movie. Yeah. And that was like one of the first times that they used Bad to the Bone. Now we know since then it's been used a jillion times in a hundred thousand different movies and it's kind of lost its luster, but this was like the first time where they used it. This was That was the suggestion of Bill Phillips, by the way, the writer, the screen screenwriter. Okay. Yeah. He not only suggested it because when he he went in to push it the producers had not heard the song before like it's a new song in in 1983 yeah and so they hadn't heard it and so bill phillips was like i literally had to go i think i heard of that one Okay, so you have George Thorogood and the Destroyers, they have Bad to the Bone. Right. You've got Buddy Holly and the Crickets, and they have a song called Not Fade Away. Okay. Of course, Buddy Holly was killed in a plane crash, along with oh, Richie yeah. Valens, the That's big right. bopper. Yeah, yeah. You can see it if you watch the movie La Bamba, right? The day the music died. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Then you have a, a song called Pledging My Love by Johnny Ace. Now, these guys are not huge guys, mainly because they died young, okay? Okay, yeah. Now, Johnny Ace was uh, known to play with guns, okay? Okay. There's an urban legend out there that he shot himself playing Russian roulette. Okay. okay. Member of his band said, no, that's not true at all. Here's what happened. He's flashing the gun around, and they're like, dude, put that away. You're going to shoot somebody. He's like, yeah, it's not loaded. Look. Boom. Oh. Kaboom. Put it to his forehead and pulled the trigger oh and died. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Johnny Ace. Okay. Not so much. Now then. <laughs> not an ace. Then you've got a song by Robert and Johnny called We Belong Together. Okay. Nothing major there. Okay. okay. Then you got a song by Little Richard called Keep It Knockin', right? That's a famous yep. song, right? Yeah, and key moment because it's the he locks the doors and everybody's trying to get out or in and can't. That's right. So Little Richard, one of the major players in rock and roll history, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. huge guy, architect of rock and roll. Yeah. When he started out, was an evangelical Christian, teetotaler, flash forward a few years, and he's got heroin and cocaine and, and alcohol problems. Okay. And sexual deviancy, like voyeurism, you know, peaking, and group sex, and all this weird stuff, okay? It was the 70s. It was a crazy time, okay? <laughs> but he develops this intense drug habit, right? okay? Yeah. Put that one on pause. Okay. Let's move on to the next song by a guy named Larry Williams. Yeah. He sings a song called Boney Maroney. Yeah. All right. He and Little Richard are good buddies. Okay. They're also drug buddies. Okay. Like, they love each other, like good friends. Yeah. Well, turns out that Little Richard owed Larry Williams some money for drugs, and Larry Williams showed up one day with a gun, was going to kill Little Richard over drug money. Now, he didn't do anything and, and didn't kill him. That moment actually pushed Little Richard to get out of drugs, get back to religion. I could do it. You know, somebody waving a gun in your face is going to yeah. get your attention. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then you've got another song by Danny and the Juniors. This song is called Rock and Roll is Here to Stay. 
Uh-huh. Famous song, right? Yep, yep. Danny of Danny and the Juniors on April 2nd, 1983, about the time filming started for this movie, yeah. he checked himself into a hotel room in Quartzville, Arizona, and committed suicide. Whoa. Wow. Death, death, death. Wow. How about that? That is crazy. I will say that the rock music used in this movie is it's powerful and it's almost creepy. Yeah, I mean, it's every single time a song is playing, you go, what are they saying? How does it apply to the scene? And you go, ah, uh, yes, that's what I see. Like it, the I hear you knocking, but you can't come in part. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like the voice of Christine, right? Exactly. Yeah. She plays it as though she's speaking. Speaking to you. Yes. Yep. Or singing, as the case may be. Now, speaking of music, jumping back over to the dead zone. The ice is going to break. This is, I think, the first movie, if not the first movie, it's one of the only movies that David Cronenberg did not work with Howard Shore. Howard Shore is normally the guy that does the music for David Cronenberg movies. Sure, sure. But at this one, it's the guy that we talked about multiple times now, Michael Kamen. Right. Another big hitter. He would compose this music on his piano at, in his apartment at home. Right. And eventually one of the neighbors came and knocked on his door and said, um, yeah, could you stop playing the music because you're giving my entire family nightmares? <laughs> it's, it's creepy. It's like dark overtones, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, Michael Kamen has done Pink Floyd The Wall, he worked with Pink Floyd on that. Yep. He did Life Force with Matilda May. <laughs> if you've ever seen Life Force, you know I, what I'm talking about. I have not. He did Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. Yep. He did Last Action Hero. And then quick throw out to a 1981 classic starring Oliver Reed. He did Venom. Oh, where my. Black Mambas break out and are on the loose. The personal <laughs> favorite of mine. Hey, by the way, one quick note that I forgot to mention. Uh-huh. I think they cut it out at the end of the movie, but... George Thorogood shows up at the end of Christine as one of the guys who's smashing the car. Yes, he he did. He was in a scene with Bill Phillips. They were the junkyard workers. Bill Phillips said the scene was so bad <laughs> that they had to cut it. Yeah. I like I don't know how you have a 3 second scene that the acting is that bad, but he said it was. I should never be an actor. It was terrible. <laughs> That's funny. Bill Phillips, the screenwriter for Christine. Yes. So, tidbit on The Dead Zone. The old mom. Actress's name is Jackie Burroughs. Okay. Okay. She plays Vera Smith, Johnny Smith's mom. Yes. Right? Yes. She was only four years older than Christopher Walken. Wow. She looks like the Crypt Keeper. (laughs) No, I'm like, what? And I looked it up. She was was in her early 40s when she made this. What? She was born in 1939, which means she was what? 44 when this movie came out. She looked like she was in her late 60s. You know, that is insane. I will tell you something from the novel. Just that character. Johnny Smith's mom Mm -hmm. is a crazy religious person. She's a zealot, right? Yeah. One of the things that I remember her character did in the novel, they didn't really get into it a whole lot in the movie. I remember she like moved to like the... Like the Antarctic, because she thought that Jesus was going to return uh, there. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was a, a weird scene. It's been a long time since I read it, but she would she do a lot of weird things in the book. In the original script, the time between when he has the accident and when he wakes up for the from the coma, instead of being instantaneous like it is in the movie, they did a montage. Like where you see Sarah, you know, standing sure. by him and then eventually losing interest and leaving and, and the dad kind of consoling her and all of that. But through that whole montage scene, mom is praying like in different places. But mom is always praying. She loves her son. Speaking about moms who love their son. Yeah. You have the, also the Frank Dodd scene. 
That's the one I thought you were getting ready to talk about. <laughs> that I did send to you because I'm I'm just watching the movie. You know, I've I've got it on the, I've got it on the big screen, and I'm watching the scene where she gets shot goes by, and I'm like, oh no, I got to rewind that one. <laughs> <laughs> I got to take a picture. This is the worst squib yeah. explosion I have ever seen in the movie. It looks like you remember the school boxes we used to have when we were kids. <laughs> like it's that big in her sweater. Yeah, just this giant squib blowing up when she's supposed to get shot. And I take I did a freeze frame and took a picture for you. It turns out there were other squib problems in this one. Apparently, when they did the World War II scene, the flashback World War II scene. Yeah. Like they had a squib on one of the soldiers go off too soon, and like he was severely burned on his legs and groin because of this squib accident. And so, and then they cut it from the movie. Yeah, you know that squib that you sent me. I want to talk about that scene for a moment because in that movie, when they, you know, Johnny's like Dodd's the killer, and Bannerman can't find Dodd, and they're like, "Where's Dodd? Dodd, where are you? Get up here!" <laughs> Not suspicious at all. I know. The guy slowly walking backwards. Yeah. We're not, he just took he off. He just took off in your car. <laughs> I watched him walk backwards the whole way, saw him get in your car and look around like he'd killed a man. Right. What the heck? What? It's not a good plan. <laughs> but when they show up to arrest him, it's like he's they're entering a house of horrors, right? Yeah. You got the crazy mom who's, get out of here, get out of here. And Johnny, I remember when he touches her, he's like, you knew. Yeah. You knew the whole time. The first time I saw that, I was repulsed by that, you know, and scared. And then you're wandering around this house looking for a serial killer. And I'm telling you what, Dodd's suicide in the movie, it's one of the most grotesque things just mentally that I think about because he props those scissors out and he's going to put it in his mouth. Yep, in his mouth and up his nose. He's I got mean, a gun, dude. Yeah, I mean, really, dude, make this fast. I just... You got a three fifty seven or a pair of uh, you know stylus scissors. Like if that was me, I'd be like measuring the scissors. Like, is this really going to go all the way, or am I just going to give myself a severe nosebleed? <laughs> going to stuck, stuck <laughs> the top of my mouth here. <laughs> I think in the book he severs his own jugular. Like, ah, uh, okay. Well, that's an interesting way to do it as well. Yeah. So the scene that leads up to that scene is the gazebo scene, right? Yeah. So they filmed this movie in Niagara. The gazebo did not exist. They built it. And the people in Niagara were like, we don't want you this coming really in. really cool. Yeah, we like it. No, they well, at first, they, yeah. they didn't want it. They were like, no, this is, we don't want you to mess up our, you know, nice little city square with this movie prop. But then they built it so well that they're like, oh, wait, this is actually kind of nice. It's <laughs> still there. People take wedding pictures. I know, right? To this day. I would love to visit it yeah <laughs> it's really cool and that tunnel where johnny's filling the cigarette wrappers and stuff like yeah, that yeah, it's yeah. there as well oh yeah that's right yeah two more things okay number one whenever he was about to have a, a moment or whenever he was dealing with you know visions that he was having uh christopher walken would like jump and twitch a little bit so cool David Cronenberg had a 357 Magnum that he would randomly fire. <laughs> and that is what caused Christopher Walken to jump like that. Legit. Uh, wardrobe, Chris peed his pants again. I love the fact that the impulses or visions that he gets is like violent attacks, you know? Yeah, it's like killing him. Like, it's killing him. Oh, yeah. And in the in the novel, these visions actually are killing him so much so that he gets a brain tumor and he can barely stand up to hold the gun when he's like 
trying to assassinate Greg Stilson. So did we talk about the different meanings of the dead zone from the book to the movie to the TV series that came out with Anthony Michael Hall in it? I don't think we differentiated, yeah. Okay, so in the book, the dead zone is, it's like this part of his brain that has gone dead from the accident he had when he was a kid. Right. His brain has had to rewire around it, and it's this rewiring that has given him the clairvoyance. Right, right. In the movie, the way it's described is when he's talking to the doctor and it's like this idea that he can change the future that he sees. Right. Like uh, he talks about the hockey incident, right? He says, you know, there's the possibility to change the future, which is, of course, very important for the climax of the movie. Right. And so he's like, it's that area of possibility of change. And that's what the dead zone is. In the series, there are things that he can't see. And yeah. that's the dead zone in the series is that the invisible part that he can't quite get to. Did you watch the series? No. I watched the first couple of seasons of the series. Yeah. It was really good for a while. I know that they like they ended season six on a major cliffhanger. Uh-huh. And then season seven never happened. So it's one of those oh, where no. yeah, it's kind of a bum deal. So oh, it's time to reboot it. Anthony Michael's still around. Let's go. I know, man. I know. He was just in another fifteen year coma. There you go. <laughs> right? <laughs> Johnny, you're back. Yeah. By the way, Johnny Smith, terrible name for a character. Right. Well, I think Stephen King did that on purpose because he wanted it to feel like anybody, like yeah. every man, you know? We talked about the dolls in Cujo, you know, that he's got a stuffed St. Bernard. Yes. In The Dead Zone, you've got this part where he's in the little girl's room having a vision of her being- Trapped in the fire, right? Uh-huh. So number one, he's all sweaty. Right. Except it's not sweat. That was the flame retardant that they right. put on him. But it looked like sweat. And it was really effective because, I mean, if you were surrounded by fire, you would be sweating. No doubt. And not only would it be hot, but you'd be scared. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But but they had to film it again because in the in the scene, there is a stuffed E.T. doll. And this is not a Universal movie. And E.T. is. And when Universal caught wind, they're like, Jeez. we will sue your pants off. Okay. Right. Let's go back and shoot. The buildings on fire scene. I know. Oh my hey, gosh. Hey, uh, Chris, remember that uh, we had to cover you with flame <laughs> retardant, and you had to lay in that bed, and we set it on fire. You got to do that again. By the way, just a little tidbit on Christine. Yeah. Keith Gordon talked about the drive-in scene. He said for three days he had to make out with Alexandra Paul. Oh yeah, yeah. And he's like, didn't want to, but <laughs> somebody had to do it, and I had to step up for the yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> I actually heard, and this is a this is a baller move right here. He knew that they they had to kiss on camera, yeah. and so he says, <laughs> "I don't really want our first kiss to be awkward on camera. Do you think we should kiss beforehand? Let's practice." And she went for uh, it. I know. <laughs> She's nineteen. Okay, brilliant. I'm an I actor. Love it. I'm just telling you, it's a lot better <laughs> if you practice first. <laughs> Okay, one of the big things I want to talk about before we move on to Final Judgment yeah. is there is a major difference between the Cujo book uh-huh. and the Cujo movie. Yeah, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Big, big, spoiler. big spoiler yeah. alert for, well, both of them really, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, Stephen King said, if there's one book in this world that I would rewrite, it's Cujo. At least the ending. So in the end, Tad, the little boy, dies of dehydration. In the novel. Yeah, in the novel, at the end of the novel, when Vic finally shows up, Tad's dead. Yeah. Then there's this whole epilogue where Donna has to go to the hospital and, you know, the Cambers are putting their life back together after their her husband was killed and Tad's dead and Donna has rabies and it is very somber ending and very sad and like heart-wrenching. Yeah. 
So I think, and Stephen King even thinks, that Stroke of Genius let Tad live at the end of the movie. For sure. 100% for sure. Absolutely. What was not a Stroke of Genius was that then... 30 seconds later, they end on a freeze frame. Yeah, you didn't like that at all. <laughs> what is that? What? Like, I mean, she comes out. They've seen each other. The husband has finally arrived. Vic is back, right? Finally arrived. She's there with the boy in her arms. She's just killed the dog. And she hands him the body of their still barely living boy and freeze. <laughs> What? Freeze. <laughs> Roll credits. He and I watched I watched the the making of on this and I heard Lewis Teague talk about what they're gonna do at the end. And he's like, and we just decided to do a freeze frame and gave no further explanation because there's not one. <laughs> Why would you you've got this entirely emotional release and oh my gosh, and it comes back when the dog busts through the window and then you're like, Oh, the family's reunited. Cut. I know, right? <laughs> Freeze. Nothing else. Oh, that's crazy. Nothing. You know, a hug and a kiss would be okay. Anything. A punch in his face. Yeah. You know? That would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a great ending. You son of a... Freeze frame on her <laughs> socking him in the jaw like Marion socks Indiana Jones, and that would have been perfect. That's right. Perfect ending. <laughs> Rewrite it. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. All right, D. So is it time to move to final judgment between these three? Uh, it is. Are we going to talk about your favorite films first? Yeah, let's do that. On okay. the on the pit stop, on the way to final judgment, final judgment yeah. let's discuss our three favorite Stephen King film adaptations. Okay. Mine is, number one, is easy because it's my favorite movie of all time. It's The Shawshank Redemption. Okay. Based on Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption from different seasons. Yes. My second one is also from different seasons. It's Stand By Me, which is based on The Body. Yes. The short story, The Body, yep. right? Right. Both of them fantastic. I've read them both. Loved the written work. Loved the movies. Number three is much longer, both book and movie. Okay. Before I get there, I'm going to do a quick honorable mention. Okay? okay. Sure. The first Stephen King book I read was It. Uh-huh. As you can tell from my picks and from our talk in our Halloween episodes, I am not a scary movie guy. When... The new movie came out just recently, like 2017, I think yeah. is when it came out. Yeah. So, you know, five years ago. But I was like, mm, I'm going to see it. I don't watch scary movies. I've read the book. The book's fantastic. I don't need to see the movie. But my daughter, who was at that point, I guess, 15 or so herself, she was like, do you want to go see this movie? Because she had she started watching scary movies at that point. Sure. And I was like, uh, she's like, I'd love it if you came and watched it with me. And I am look at it and it's got, I mean, it's been out for a while and it's got over an eight on imdb it was like an 8.1 or 8.2 i was like sure oh dang this is actually a good movie this isn't just a scary movie this is a good and you look at people who like scary movies and they would call this a baby scary movie like this is not a scary movie sure. but i was scared crapless the <laughs> whole time like my mouth was open but it's so wonderfully done it they found that style like stand by me where they're taking you back and you feel like you've gone back to the 50s but really you've gone back to the 80s and they do it perfectly in that movie. So that's my honorable mention. Okay, sure. And then my number three, number three is 112263. Loved the book from beginning to end. Loved it. And James Franco did a fantastic job with the series. Yeah. Loved it. Yep. Very good. Okay. So because I suspected that our three were going to be so similar, yeah. I'm going to give you a different three. Okay. So because my number one is Shawshank, my number two is Stand By Me. My number, my personal number three is The Green Mile. Okay. Uh, the Tom Hanks movie, The Green Mile, uh, just 
I just love the sort of hope and emotional pull of that movie. It's funny that of my top three Stephen King movies, none are scary. Like, none are horror movies. Right. You know? Right. But... From there, the next is The Stand, the miniseries, the TV miniseries. Okay? Oh, wow, yeah. And it's cheesy, and it's not acted well, but it was such a must-see television event for me in 94. I watched it. Like, my college buddies, we we set the VCR, and we were in front of the TV, and that was a big deal to us. 100%, me too. And then The Dead Zone. It's oh, yeah. one of my favorite Stephen King film adaptations. It's a great one. Yep. It really is. So I'm going to throw in, I've got a couple of... Uh, you just tipped your judgment, by the way. I know, I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my top three Stephen King books. Okay. Okay. So I've read, I don't know, 20 or 30 Stephen King books. I okay. think you've read what? Two or uh, three? No, yeah. Three, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Mostly short stories, two full books. It and 11-22-63. All right. So my top three Stephen King books are number three, Misery. I'm one of these people who hates the movie. Like, I do not like oh, the movie at really? all. Yeah. Really? Because I'm so, well, I was so mesmerized by the book. Uh-huh. And she was so horrific in the book. William Goldman is the one who wrote the screenplay for the movie. Yeah. And spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book or if you haven't seen the movie, but if you have seen the movie, you know the hobbling scene. It's, yeah. it's a very memorable scene. Sure. In the book, she cuts off his feet with a blowtorch. Am I right? She uses an axe to remove his foot. Then she cauterizes his leg to stop the bleeding uh-huh. with yeah. a blowtorch. William Goldman, when they came to him and said, hey, we want to change this. We don't want her to chop off the legs and we don't want to do the blowtorch. He's like, are you crazy? This is the most memorable part it of is. the book. Yeah, It is a brilliant scene. Are you crazy? He said after he saw the movie, he realized he was wrong. It would have been too right. much. It would have been too much for a movie. Everybody else loves the movie because of that scene. And I'm like, oh, that's not harsh enough. The book was... She also takes his thumb off. Like she, she turkey knifes his thumb off. <laughs> All right. So, number three, Book Misery. Number two, The Stand. I absolutely love The Stand's epics, thousand pages, and it's good versus evil, and it's awesome. In this process, I've, I've listened to several Stephen King interviews, usually on the David Letterman show. Yeah. Uh, but he's, in one of the interviews, he was talking about The Stand and how he had he had built this story. Like, he doesn't know where it's going to go. By the way, you talk, we talked about the difference in the end on Cujo. People were mad at him because the little boy died, right? right? Yeah. And his response was, I'm not God. I didn't want him to die either. It's just the way that the story happened, you know? And so and so, it's it makes sense that he would change, you know, he, if he could choose, he would go back and change it. But he doesn't he doesn't have the end in mind when he starts writing a book. It's it's fascinating how he writes. And so with The Stand, he had gotten himself in this position where he had developed all of these characters, and he's halfway, I mean, he's hundreds of pages into the book, and he's like, how am I going to resolve all of these stories? And he's just on a walk, on a fall day, just went for a walk, and at some point he's like, could drop a bomb on him. Yep. I could drop a bomb on him. Yeah. I'll drop a bomb on him. And that was his solution. I'm just going to just suddenly kill half of the characters. Oh, it's such a climax. I love it. Yeah. And then finally, my number one book, my number one Stephen King book of all time is 11-22-63. Yeah. It's great. Absolutely awesome. It's great. What would you do if you could prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy or alter the future? I mean, anything. Right. Or at this point, get hamburger for only a dollar ninety five. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Set your sights high or low. It's up to you. <laughs> 
All right, just a quick little thing, because I've read a lot of his short stories. Yep. My three favorite short stories, number three, Dolan's Cadillac, story about a guy who seeks revenge against a mobster, and he uh, buries him alive. Okay. It's a really cool story. Yeah. Then you have uh, The Jaunt. It's about, uh, like, it's like The Fly, where you molecularly uh, transport to, like, instantaneously. It's like, instead of flying an airplane across the country, you just reappear through these little teleportation pods. But if you're awake, it's eternal. If you're so, they put you to sleep in order to transmit, and it happens instantaneously. But if you are awake, that transmission takes millions of years. Huh? It is a mind-bending story. Sounds called the jaunt. The jaunt. What? What were the books that these two were in? Uh, Dolan's Cadillac was in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. The jaunt is in Skeleton Crew. Okay. And then my number one is called Survivor Type. And it's about this guy who's transporting like morphine and he's a surgeon and he's been blacklisted as a doctor and he crash lands on this island. And so it's him by himself. He's got no food, but he's got a a ship full of morphine and he breaks his ankle. So he has to surgically remove his ankle. Well, he doesn't have any food. So guess what he eats? His ankle. Yeah. And then he goes from there. Okay. So, well, survivor type. You've teased them up nicely. I want to. I want to read all three of them. Now. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, there you go. Okay, are we to final judgment? We're to final judgment. Well, you've tipped your hand already. I, I know have. What, I know what you're picking as your number one. Sure. Right. And so I am going to go ahead and let you tell me what number two. I mean, go yeah. on, give me your final judgment, and then I'll 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 reveal mine to you. Okay. So I've got a big nostalgic pull to Cujo, but I think it's the third best movie out of these three. Mm-hmm. It didn't age quite as well. I wasn't, I didn't get the same thrill from it when I first watched it. Skillfully made, storytelling is good. The little kid drove me insane. So I'm rating that number three. Number two is Christine, obviously. And then number one, I think, I think The Dead Zone is a sort of psychic, uh, supernatural masterpiece. I love it. Yeah. It's one of David Cronenberg's best movies. My turn? Yeah. Okay. Well, I won't I won't draw this out. Okay. I had seen one of these movies before we decided to do this series. Yeah. Um, and that was Christine. I had wanted to see The Dead Zone. I had not wanted to see Cujo uh, because I had the same thought. I'm like, how can a St. Bernard be scary? Right. And even as I watched it, I was texting you. I'm like, how did they not change the dog? I mean, at the very least, how did how do they not? I, I I mean, a dog terrorizing a woman and her child doesn't seem like the basis for an entire movie for me, anyway. But that dog being a big, lovable, fuzzy dog didn't make any sense, and so I saved it for last. It was hard for me to make myself watch it, but I'm glad that I did. For what it was, story wise, they actually did a very good job with it. Sure, I was scared. I'm mean, not scared, but I was surprised at moments. You know, yeah. they had good scare moments, good jump scenes. The acting I thought was phenomenal. Yes, the little kid's annoying because he's acting like any little kid in this situation would. That's true. He did a fantastic job in his performance. And I thought every other actor did a great job. I thought that the, again, for what it was, filmed well. It was directed well. Even the dialogue was pretty good. It wasn't great, but it was pretty good. And so I was pleased. But it's still number three for me. Okay. I was excited to watch Christine again. I enjoyed it the first time I saw it. I enjoyed it even more this time. And then I was happy to watch The Dead Zone, which I hadn't seen. And it, just like you, is the number one pick for me. So same All right. same exact layout. Cujo's the third best, but better than I thought it was going to be. Christine is still great. And Dead Zone wowed me more than the other two by far. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. So we totally aligned on these, all three of these movies turning 40 years old and we nailed it. Just in time for the great pumpkin. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, great. Well, we want to hear from you. Where do you rank these three movies and where do you rank the top three Stephen King adaptations? We'd love to hear that from you as well. Absolutely. Guys, we appreciate you so much coming in and listening to us again and again, week after week. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening. We promise to keep on doing this as long as you guys keep on listening. All right, everybody. Come back next week. Dean and I are going to tackle one of the biggest movies of 1978. (laughs) 45 years old this year. That's right. And it's still the word. What's the word? Grease is the word. Grease is the word. It's the (laughs) word. It's the word. So we're actually going to compare movie to soundtrack. Yeah. It's a little, a little bit different. different take, yeah. you know. A little so, bit different on this one. That would be fun, though. We couldn't get anything to match up perfectly, so we thought, well, let's turn it against itself. Exactly. I like it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. See you next week. <laughs>